This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. We hope you brought your appetite because on this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Dr. Ashley Rose Young from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History about American food, history, and culture. Dr. Young will share how she got started researching the intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender in American food culture and economy and where that work is taking her in this post-COVID world. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by another colleague from the Smithsonian Institution. Today, we are talking to, talking to Dr. Ashley Rose Young from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, where she serves as the historian of the American Food History Project. And so we're going to dive into all of this, her background, where she was educated, and how she became... Um, a part of this really cool project, what they're working on, and how this dovetails with the world that we're living in. But before we do all that, we love to get to know people and kind of like how they make their paths into this. So, um, Ashley, where did you grow up? What was your spark moment? How do you become a food historian at the Smithsonian? Well, thank you so much for having me today, Nick. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And I'd love to provide some background, like you said, on and where I grew up. So I was born and raised in the great city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So not too far from where I live now in Washington, D.C. And I do feel that my work as a food historian really dovetails in almost a faded way with the careers of my parents. So my mother, um, who passed away several years ago, she was a food entrepreneur in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My family owned and operated gourmet grocery food stores in my hometown for almost 70 years. It was a business started by my grandparents, and then it was taken over by my mom and her sisters. So McGinnis Sisters Special Food Stores was was born in the 1980s when those three wonderful women uh, took on the mantle of the family business. And, and I grew up in that environment, going in and you know, helping out my mom at three years old. I, I was there uh, putting pizza sauce on the, the pizzas every major holiday. Every cousin was there cutting cheese, preparing orders, you know, getting um, deli meats ready, peeling shrimp, you name it. We, we, were, we were in every department of that store or of the three stores rather. And my father uh, is a retired high school history teacher. So when you kind of look at the parental influences in my life, um, I'm very much inspired by the work that my parents did. And, you know, I always say, I make the joke that instead of going to Disney World, right, growing up like some kids would go, my family, we went to Colonial Williamsburg. We came to the National Mall. We we went to Gettysburg. That That was our summer vacation every year. And I was just enthralled with historic sites, with museums, um, with the history of our nation. There was so much to learn. And um, I really think that that seed kind of flourished in college, actually. Uh, for a while, I thought I'd be a marine biologist. I thought I'd go and be an ornithologist. I was... I actually went to Yale for undergrad and I wanted to work with Richard Crum, who is a renowned ornithologist and uh, biologist who studies 
birds of paradise in the Yucatan Peninsula. So specific. And as a freshman in college, I said, I want to work with him. He's amazing. You know, live this dream of, of working with animals. But I soon came to realize that Unfortunately, when you want to be a bio major at Yale University, you get lumped in with the pre-meds and nothing against pre-meds, but man, that's a competitive, that's a competitive world in which you're just a number, right? Among a whole sea of people trying to make it to the top of, of that world. So I said, you know, I don't think biology is for me. And you know, the classes I love most are the history classes that I'm taking for fun. So why don't I just change to a history major. And that's what I actually ended up doing. And and what's interesting is my kind of my aha moment for museums and food history and everything came my junior year of college. I took a course with Maria Trumpler called Women Work in Food. And I came to realize that you could use food as a critical lens into the past, into gender, into race, into work, um, into our food systems and, and how our food system is incredibly broken, as much innovation as, as there is in our food system. But then shortly thereafter, I applied for an internship that changed my life. And it's at a museum. It was at a museum that still exists today called the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. We've actually had them on PreserveCast. We did an, an, an interview with them uh, for for New Year's Day, I think it was. And we Wonderful. New, York, New, New Orleans celebration. So Liz Williams, the founder of that institution, now the National Food and Beverage uh, Institute, She's my mentor. She changed my life. I was their first intern <laughs> just a few years after the museum was established. And I was there uh, as a curatorial intern, but I had experience in so many different aspects of the museum. And with small museums, you can have that opportunity to work in the gift shop, to curate an exhibit, to lead the kids' culinary camp, to give tours, to catalog objects. Uh, you know, I was actually part of the team that created the first catalog records that actually started going through with a systematic eye to organizing all of the wonderful objects that the museum has uh, as part of their collection. Archival work too. It's not just objects, but cataloging records that were donated by these amazing culinarians, food writers and whatnot. So that was my transformative moment. I came to realize that you could do such um, invigorating work, engaging work with the public, that you could look at history really deeply um, through the lens of food. And what was so amazing was getting at the stories of people who are so often left out of a traditional historic record. Um, you know, cooks, home cooks, women working in the domestic service industry in the 19th century, in the 18th century, um, street food vendors, you know, people who so often are just... Um, Part of a descriptive sentence, you know, in a say a work about the 19th century New Orleans, oh, street food vendors and their amazing street cries, and then the narrative moves on. I came to see that there's so much more there to be told when you look at food. It's a great equalizer in some ways when you're studying history, although as we know, food access is certainly not equitable um, among our communities, but everyone... Uh, you know, in a world, a perfect world, everyone has the opportunity to eat every day. 
And it's an essential part of ourselves and our sense of community and our sense of well-being. So it does provide an opportunity to really um, get at the lives of everyday folk and everyday people like you and me. And that's the kind of history that I'm inspired by. So that changed my life. I decided to uh, change my senior thesis topic at Yale. I wrote about, uh, you know, 19th and early 20th century Creole cookbooks. And then I applied immediately to grad school to pursue a PhD in history, studying New Orleans through the lens of food. And all the while I was in grad school, I was cultivating not only the skill sets to become a professor, but the skill sets to become a curator, uh, to work in museums, to curate exhibits, to do public uh, public art, to to engage with the community. That's really where my passion um, really gravitated towards. And so Everything in grad school, I felt like I was living a dual life. Yes, I was training to be that traditional professor, but I was almost the black sheep of my grad program in a sense because I was guest curating and because I was organizing these large scale community dinners. And sometimes professors would go, Ashley, what are you what are you doing? You know, you're, go work on your dissertation. Why, why, why are you organizing this oral history project about the Carborough Farmers Market in North Carolina? You know, but by the end of my program, there was a change of heart, I think, in the history department at Duke University and in the grad school at Duke University, where they saw the benefit of being what they call a versatile humanist. And they saw the tremendous need and benefit of having public-facing history work and public historians. Um, and so instead of being the black sheep, in a way, I kind of became a poster child of this versatile humanist movement. And I was very lucky to get support from Duke University to have an internship at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. I was just totally enamored with the culture of our museum. And I have the great fortune of working there now as a historian of the American Food History Project. And it's been five years um, and every day is different. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly expanding my sense of self and community and and, and my awareness of, of the diverse communities of the United States. And you know, all I can hope is that I can continue to do this work for for many years to come. So that is kind of the arc of of my journey in five minutes or maybe ten. I can be long winded. Yeah. No, but. it's it's, a, it's a, it paints a great picture, and and there's some common threads to a lot of people that we talk to, where it's parents who are interested in something and um, drag their kids to historic sites, and then you know fell in love with it. You mentioned Gettysburg. We're recording it on the 159th anniversary of Gettysburg today. That's um, awesome. And um, I, you know, I, I'm curious, I think people are probably listening, one one sort of like uh, silly question for you um, after that very great introduction and background on all of this is as a food historian, do you cook a lot? It's not a silly question at all. And absolutely, I cook every day with my husband. I actually just got married uh, a few weeks ago. So <laughs> getting used to saying husband instead of boyfriend or fiance, but we love cooking and Cooking has been a huge part of my identity going back to my mom. I mean, she was a tremendous, tremendous home cook. My grandmothers were phenomenal. And so I find great joy in cooking and 
and sharing that time with my husband, you know, after the workday, just taking a deep breath, putting on NPR and working our way through a recipe is really important. And, you know, I will say in addition to just my curiosity and love of modern cuisine and trying out new recipes, I am actually trained in 19th century open hearth cooking as well. So I write about 19th century New Orleans. That's what my dissertation was on and what one of my books is on right now. And, you know, I was, I was reading these descriptions of gumbo. I was reading these descriptions of these really deeply historic and important dishes, knowing that they were prepared over the open hearth, but not really understanding what that process meant. And so I reached out to several institutions in Louisiana, I said, hey, you know, I see that you do live open hearth cooking demonstrations at the Herman Grimma House in New Orleans, you know, at Magnolia Mound Plantation uh, up in Baton Rouge. And I said, would you mind if I interned with you, you know, this summer while I'm doing research? And, and so that's what I did. You know, I drove up to Baton Rouge once a week. I also went to the Herman Grimma House and, you know, learned how to cook over coals, over the open flame, to use cast iron to maintain a fire. Um, And I learned so much about the physical labor of preparing food um, in this historic way and from, you know, an 1840s kitchen and an 1860s kitchen. I learned that after a day of cooking, you know, your lungs burn from the amount of smoke that you inhale as you're preparing that food. And it really... um, It really opened my eyes to the labor, the labor aspect and the physical toll that open hearth cooking can take on your body. Um, And so that was that was something I could only learn uh, by doing those internships. How often do you get into that? And do you live in Washington, D.C.? Or do you live in in the burbs or you're do you have an open hearth you're able to work on and in your back in your at your at your place? So I live just three blocks from the National Mall. So I am in the heart of Washington, D.C. I can see the Smithsonian from from my apartment window. Um, So no, no open hearths near me as much as I have a secret desire, perhaps one day, to have different historic um, open hearth or fire cooking methods. You know, I have this dream of having those at our museum out on our lawn, but you know, you don't want to have fire near uh, precious, precious objects. So I think that will remain a dream, but who knows, maybe at an offsite location one day. <laughs> well, we'll have to, we'll have to um, make your dreams come true and find a Maryland site to bring you out exactly. to and, and get, get your lungs burning again. So, yes. <laughs> um, so for people who are, you know, we've interviewed a couple different um, folks at the Smithsonian, some who are like collecting curators, some who are, you know, exhibition curators, you're a historian. What is it that like, you know, what are you working on? Like, obviously, today you're doing a podcast, but you're going to hang up with this and you're going to do what? Maybe give people just an idea of what you're going to do today instead of, oh, your average day, because there's probably no average day. But what are you doing today? Yes, yes, no average day. So interestingly, (laughs) I have a fun day ahead of me, but Uh, I will say that today I'm focusing on two book projects that I'm working on. So I am, don't ask me why I did this to myself, but in addition to all my museum duties, 
much our public programming, curatorial, collecting. I mean, all of those things. I'm also working on two books. One of them is based on my dissertation. So this is a book I'm publishing with Oxford University Press on the historic street food culture of New Orleans uh, and the food entrepreneurs, right, who provided for themselves and their families through this often overlooked form of labor, street food. Uh, The other book I'm working on is I'm co-authoring it with Dr. Rhodes, who is the granddaughter of an amazing Creole chef, chef named Lena Richard. Uh, Lena Richard was the first Black author of a Creole cookbook. She, we believe she was the first, uh, first Black woman, first Black personality to have her own television show in 1949. Uh, Lena Richards' New Orleans cookbook. This is almost 15 years before Julia Child. She also had a small um, empire, culinary empire in New Orleans, really. Restaurants, frozen food business, cooking school. I mean, she did so many barrier-breaking things. And, and unfortunately, her story has been lost in the archives. It's known by her community to some extent, but really isn't present in the archives. So I've been working with her granddaughter for over a decade now. And we finally, I'm happy to say, um, I believe we have a book deal, which is really exciting. So I'm actually going to be on a phone call later today with Dr. Rhodes, my co-author, brainstorming ways of interviewing New Orleanians about their memories of, of... when Lena Richard was ar- alive, she passed away in, in 1950. So it's it's been quite a while. Um, but I'll also be working on my dissertation-based book as well. I'm diving into the WPA slave narratives that have been digitized by the Library of Congress. And um, I'm looking for evidence of street vendors, of people who were previously enslaved, who made a living for themselves um, by growing food and vending it on the streets. Um, I'm really interested in that form of entrepreneurship and really thinking of it as entrepreneurship rather than, um, you know, it's so often been categorized as labor or, you know, like I said, it's something that's not really paid attention to. But these individuals in the 1800s, they fed cities. You know, we, we think about the cotton industry, tobacco, these huge plantation cultures, rice. But who's actually feeding cities like Charleston, like New Orleans? It's often in the early 1800s enslaved women. Uh, later on, it's recent migrants from Europe, people who are typically disenfranchised uh, in these larger historical narratives, but actually practice some impressive and considerable entrepreneurship and agency. Through, through food. So. so you're doing a lot of publication work. You're doing a lot of research, a lot of writing. Do you collect? Are you involved in collecting? And what kind of like, maybe give us an idea of something you've recently collected instead of just kind of generally, but like uh-huh. what's something you recently went out and got? So I will say, so I'm not technically a curator right. at our museum. So curators have the legal authority to bring objects into the national collection. I work very closely, though, with my colleagues who are curators. And so I will go out into the field with them, as we say. Um, I will help identify uh, individuals whose stories are of importance, you know, of interest to our museum. And, and we will go on field trips. We'll go across the country. We'll collect oral histories and often objects. So maybe this is a good place to take a quick break, come back, and then let's talk about cooking up history. I think people listening would be really interested in that, want to check that out. Um, and we'll talk about COVID and, and we'll do all that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. 
The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ashley Rose Young from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, where she serves as the historian of the American Food History Project. Uh, before we took our break, we were talking about um, what got her into this work and what she does at the Smithsonian, how it all comes together, an example of some recent collecting that she's done in partnership with some curators. But you mentioned before cooking up history. And so this is a cooking demonstration series that you that you host. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what it is, where people can see it, what kind of stories you cover, what is cooking up history? Cooking up history is my passion. That's, <laughs> that's what it is, but it is a monthly cooking demonstration program that we hold right in the heart of the National Museum of American History. We actually have an amazing cooking demonstration stage outfitted with all the bells and whistles, not only of a kitchen space, but of a, a stage, of a, of a studio space. And we invite guest chefs from all over the country, sometimes even from different parts of the world, to come in and prepare live in front of a muse museum audience a dish or several dishes that reflect an aspect of their story. Maybe it's a personal story of, of what their life was like growing up. Maybe they're dishes that reflect their current community activism. Maybe they're dishes that reflect uh, sensibilities of environmental sustainability or uh, community resilience. I mean, honestly, any part of history that you can cover, uh, we can talk about it on the kitchen demo stage. And to this day, I think we've done over 110 unique cooking up history programs uh, since since they first started on the kitchen stage in 2015. And I'll note, I was not the first host uh, of this program series. I came into the museum in 2017 uh, and I, I took over from my wonderful colleague, Jessica Carbone, who was heading off to Harvard to get her PhD in American studies. And so um, together we really have I mean, honestly, talked about everything and anything. I have a memory of Chef Martin Yan coming to the museum to help us tell the story of the Transcontinental Railroad, right? The construction of it and Chinese and Chinese Americans who helped build that uh, railroad moving, you know, from the Pacific coast eastward and, and the food cultures of those laborers, of those of that community, which interesting and in contrast to Irish and German workers who were the main source of labor coming from the East Coast, uh, the Chinese workers were tasked with hiring their own chefs, their own cooks to actually prepare food where German and Irish workers were kind of provided, you know, basic food uh, 
basic food by their employers, but were often malnourished and undernourished. Conversely, Chinese workers were getting direct imports from China of very healthful foods, of very diverse foods. And you see that in the archival evidence, they, their community was uh, healthier, right? They didn't, they didn't uh, suffer from the same kinds of illnesses that laborers coming from the East Coast were. And so we worked with Martin Yan to kind of explore these traditional Chinese cultures, some of the foods that may have been prepared as part of that. So that's a very niche topic, but that was something that really stuck out in my mind because Martin Yan was someone I grew up watching on TV. And it was so amazing to be on stage with him and and help share this history that not many Americans know about, for sure. And so you can catch it online. We, and we'll put links in the show notes to where people can find all the, all the previous episodes. It was previously used to be live. When is it? Is there a plan for it to kind of come back now as wherever we are in the pandemic? Yes. Uh, that, that this is going to happen? Or what, what are you thinking? So I'm... I'm happy to share that we are actually firing up the kitchen stage again this September. And we're going to do this on September 17 with Chef Silvana Esparza, who's coming in from Phoenix, Arizona. And she is uh, known for her Barrio Cafe. And she is so cool. I am so excited to be on the stage with her. And the reason we reached out to her is she is an amazing community activist, in addition to being a really inspiring chef. And we, a few weeks ago, had this idea of, you know, celebrating Latino culture in September because it's part of Hispanic Heritage Month. And we're having a museum-wide festival the weekend of the 17th. And we were trying to find an object in our collections that could inspire uh, a cooking up history and the first cooking up history, you know, bringing bringing this amazing program back to the museum. And recently, my colleague, Steve Velasquez, who's a curator at the museum, installed an amazing exhibit featuring Dave's Dream. This is a low rider vehicle that has been in our collections for quite some time. It is gorgeous. I mean, this is a decked out car with velvet. I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's now the centerpiece. When you walk into the museum on the first floor, it's on display. And we said, why don't we do a cooking up history program on lowrider culture that will highlight this really amazing and robust community culture that you see in the Southwest, that you see in Southern California, and also talk about the food ways and the food culture uh, that surrounds lowriders. And so we thought, well, who's a chef that we might turn to um, who can help us tell the story? And Chef Silvana Esparza's name immediately came up. She is a, an you know, totally into lowrider culture. She is passionate about it. And she has this amazing connection to Phoenix um, and also just Southwestern food cultures. So we are so excited to have her as our guest chef on September 17 to help us fire up the kitchen once again. It's going to be a really special event. And we will be recording it and putting it online later so that people can access it who may not be at the museum itself on September 17. That's something we're really trying to commit to in this post, well, this almost endemic, almost endemic world where we learned a lot during COVID-19 about how to make our in-person programs uh, digital. And we want to take that new technology, those new systems of bringing these public programs to the public virtually, uh, we want to implement that moving forward. So we have plans to record our cooking up histories and making them available, accessible, accessible online uh, moving forward, which is great. 
it's actually a good um, segue there because I wanted to ask you about COVID and food um, <laughs> because, you know, you mentioned sort of understanding or recognizing that our food systems are, are broken. And I think COVID opened a lot of people's eyes to that. I mean, I remember my wife sort of feeling like shell shocked when she came back from the grocery store and said like there was no meat, like it was gone. And like realizing like, wow, like this is really unstable. Like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're just, a, we're, we, we sort of teeter on this edge. So I think it opened people's eyes uh, to a lot of different impacts and, and thoughts around food and food became comfort. People gained weight, people lose, lost weight, people baked bread, people did all these different things. Um, and a lot of it had to do with food because we were all cooped up. Um, and I'm curious, um, how COVID has impacted the work that you've done in terms of curation? Absolutely. I mean, COVID, they really put a stop for months and months and months to our curatorial work and also our public programming work, which I consider to go hand in hand with our curatorial work. And I'm grateful again that my job allows me to do both, uh, which isn't always the case in, in museum work. But our museum, I, I mean, we shut down the second week of of March, we all went home and we were struggling to figure out how to telework, how, while also trying to cope with a global pandemic and all the emotional um, turmoil that comes with that. And then we start seeing issues emerge front and center concerns about restaurants surviving, concerns about feeding our community members um, and feeling completely helpless. I mean, this is a point, if we can go back two years where we were afraid to leave our homes. People were afraid to go to the grocery store and then panic buying sets in and we're seeing shortages of certain food types. I mean, I remember my father saying, you need to go to the grocery store and get canned food in case, in case there are shortages so you have something that can last several weeks. And I remember brushing him off. This was in February. And I'm like, oh, dad, what are you talking about? And then lessons learned several, several weeks later. But I do think we learned an important lesson, a lesson that many, many Americans are far too well aware of, which is that our food system is not perfect. It's far from perfect. There are so many Americans every day who go hungry who cannot access fresh, affordable, culturally appropriate and safe food. And the pandemic really put that front and center. And in really inspiring ways, we saw chefs, we, sh we saw neighbors, we, everyday people stepping up, even in the midst of all the unknown about how, how COVID spread, stepping up and opening up kitchens to feed community members to feed essential workers. Uh, we have many stories that we learned about from our chefs that we know across the country. You know, we all, we checked in on them because there are, there are friends, there are colleagues just saying, are you okay? How's it going? And many of them responded, we're, you know, we're moving ahead with community activism. We're opening up a kitchen. We want to use these, um, we want to use perishable goods that will otherwise spoil. We want to get that out to community members and feed community members. You see that with DC Central Kitchen, World Central Kitchen, these large organizations um, really stepped up to the plate. I mean, you see Chef, Chef Jose Andres changed his restaurants in DC into, um, into eateries where anyone could walk up and access a hot meal, right, uh, during COVID. And so it was incredibly inspiring. It was emotionally 
uh, exhausting for the chefs that we were interviewing for the community members relying on them. Um, but I think these themes of resilience really came through too, that in times of need, people are willing to step up. But I hope and I think that we're coming through this pandemic with a greater awareness of the food insecurity that people face, not only during a pandemic, but prior to the pandemic. And now as we move into this endemic stage, those issues haven't gone away. And food security and questions of how to equitably feed our communities should remain at the forefront of our awareness and of our efforts to build a better community, a more sustainable community. So um, we were lucky to interview, like I said, many, many chefs. And some of those interviews are now becoming part of the national collection, um, part of our oral history collections, which have been key because we couldn't collect objects. The museum was closed. We couldn't have objects coming into the museum for years. But what we could do was collect stories through oral histories. And those voices, um, in some cases, stood are standing for objects where we normally would have collected the objects. But now that the museum is open again, we're collecting objects, we're going back to those chefs, back to those community advocates. And we're asking uh, asking for those objects if they're, if they're willing to donate them. So we're starting to kind of fill the gap. Uh, so Do you think that there will be a... Uh a COVID food exhibition at some point? That's a really good question. Um, it's not necessarily on the books right now, but I do think that as a society, we're one, we will want to look back on COVID and understand it. Uh, and I think objects are really going to help us understand what happened. You know, I remember talking to a, a restaurateur, a street food vendor in Pittsburgh who had a food truck. And his customers were concerned about hand-to-hand contact. So they devised this, what they called a burger slide out of wood. It used to be the kind of shelf that they put the condiments on, but they repurposed it. And at the food truck window, they had one end and then it went down to a table, maybe eight or 10 feet away. And they would slide the sandwiches down the burger slide to their customers to help mitigate those fears of, of transmission, right? And if we remember... You know, during the early months of the pandemic, street food was critical because restaurants were closed. And and we felt some people felt the only safe place to go was to an outside vendor, right? Someone who was literally outdoors. Um, And so I'm really intrigued by just those little innovations, too. That one is kind of sweet and, and fun, but it does reflect a deeper issue of these concerns of transmission and the unknowability. We didn't know that how COVID um, was transmitted. So, you know, I'm not sure if the burger slide will come to the museum or not. It might, but I do think moving forward, there will absolutely be an exhibition on COVID. It might not specifically focus on food, but I would imagine, given what we've collected, that there would at least be a section uh, dedicated to the ways in which, you know, especially the community activism, I can really see that um, being critical to the story, for sure. Well, this has been really exciting. We're going to have to have you back to talk about um, your New Orleans project and the books that you're working on. So we've talked a little bit about what you're working on now. We always ask everyone, and it's it's sort of a painful question for people who come on the podcast, what is your favorite historic place or site is our final question. I know, you know, that's so hard. That's so hard. I will say, so I live three blocks from the National Mall. And that's certainly a historic site. And I remember for months and months when I first started my job 
I felt like my I felt like my jaw dropped every time I walked to work. And I walked across the National Mall and I looked to my left and I saw the Washington Monument. I looked to my right, I saw Capitol Hill and everywhere around me, I was surrounded by Smithsonian museums. It was the, the, it was like the embodiment of, of a dream <laughs> I realized to, to be able to walk across the mall in that way. So for me, honestly, it's my backyard and my backyard just so happens to be the National Mall. And so I would say that's my answer for sure. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I live in Maryland. We come into the district often. And anytime you drive in and you catch that first glimpse of the Washington Monument, it's sort of, if it doesn't take your breath away, then you're, you're just too jaded. So yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fun. I'm I'm serious. We're going to have to have you back to talk about these books once they're published. Um, and looking forward to uh, seeing the, the Cooking Live demonstrations. We'll put links in the notes to all of this information there and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.